giant robot smashing into other giant robots. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the giant robots smashing into other giant robots podcast. It is Friday, January 18th. My name is Ben Orenstein, and today I'm here with Daniel Jalkut. How's it going, Daniel? It's going good. Thanks for having me. Uh, absolutely. So you live nearby? Yes, I live a uh, pretty, pretty short train ride away, the Boston Red Line, for folks who know what that is. That's and right. I was able to hop on the Red Line today in our 19-degree weather and hop out at the other end here in downtown Boston. Yeah. So are you, are you in Somerville? I'm actually in Arlington, which is you know at the very end of the Red Line, and then kind of over the river and through the woods from there. Yeah. Um, but it's a it's a nice little uh, connection to the city that uh, that train. It's a good compromise, actually. Arlington is. It's, yeah. it's, it feels fairly uh, suburban, but you're actually really within striking distance of the city. Right. Exactly. And that's what I like about. It. I mean, I've got two kids at home now, so it's the. Uh, the compromise for space versus accessibility. Yeah, I think there are a lot of uh, people in that rough demographic in that city move from sort of closer to downtown to there as like that compromise. Yeah, there's like a, a Boston, there's like a Boston, Somerville, Arlington triangle, I think. <laughs> so. Yeah, agreed. Yeah. Um, so I have a, first a very important and serious question, which is where did your Twitter handle come from? Oh, boy. Uh, my Twitter handle, Daniel Punk Ass, uh, go, comes actually from my AIM handle. Okay. Uh, so now anybody out there who wants to spam me on AIM can, uh, can do that. But uh, this was... Do you was, still go on AIM? I do. I, I mean, this, this is funny. Like, a surprising number of people still go on AIM, I think. I, I actually picked that name back, I guess, in the 90s when somebody got me to go on AIM for the first time and... Mm-hmm. Um, this is AOL Instant Messenger, by the way. Yes, just right. In case of course, people aren't familiar. Yes, um, and what happened was I don't know the, the 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 person who got me to go on it was always calling me punk ass. Yeah, and um, so it was sort of a tribute to her, I think, that when I conceded to get on this this fancy chat thing, yeah. that I would have this name, you know, constructed from those elements. Uh-huh. So. so, I mean, I'm, I remember back in like the late 90s, early 2000s, this was like the de facto way to do instant messaging. But I, I can't remember when I switched off, but probably bef- like early 2000 or so. But you're, you're still going strong with this? Yeah, and there's, uh, to some extent, I think, actually, um, Apple has perpetuated AIM among Mac users, mm-hmm. to, uh, at least of a certain type. Um you know, for like uh, chat room type stuff, I'm like most other geeks. I use uh, IRC, various IRC channels. But like, um, you know, when Apple came out with iChat, I guess around 2001 or so, that was a big deal then. They went with, um, they made like a deal with AIM at that point where all Mac.com addresses became AIM handles, I think. Hmm. It was like some kind of situation where um, I think, by AIM's own standards for handles, there could be no duplication, like if somebody came in with the, all these Mac.com mm-hmm. IDs. Mm-hmm. Um, so I just found like more and more. I mean, anybody who who has a Mac and has iChat now called Messages has access to AIM, and it's only in this past uh, year or two now with I, with iMessage mm-hmm. that um, f- you know there's sort of like a uncertainty now if you open up Messages, are you talking to someone with iMessage or with AIM? Right. Um, or instant message for that matter. I don't, you know, on the phone at least. I don't know if they use that on the, on the Mac, but. Mm. So, so we, I, I just realized we haven't really um, talked about your background very much. We kind of just dove into things. So uh, you run a software company currently called Red Sweater Software. That's right. And you're sort of an independent software vendor. Is that a fair characterization? That's a- absolutely right. I run the software company in the sense that anybody runs their own life and that <laughs> it's just me uh, mostly managing myself. Uh-huh. 
occasionally, you know, outsourcing some uh, some stuff on a contract basis. But um, yeah, I make uh, Mac software, looking at iOS stuff, sort of like looking at iOS development for the past four years under threat of violence from my users who <laughs> want my existing apps ported over. Yeah. Um, but uh, that yeah, that's my story, uh, modern day story. My um, sort of or- origin in the tech industry comes from uh, straight out of college. I worked at Apple. Mm-hmm. So uh, I started at Apple, uh, worked at Apple for about seven years, left Apple, and uh, ended up starting Red Sweater. So I've always just been completely steeped in Apple stuff. Yeah. Um, I know like there's an emphasis on in your company and with your listeners on Ruby. Um, that's something I've felt some kinship with just because there is like kind of a Coco Ruby connection somehow. Mm-hmm. I think it's the um, the design philosophy. Mm. But um, me myself have mostly stuck to pure Apple stuff. Um, I use some Python for my uh, for my website. But uh, mostly uh, just day-to-day, I'm an Objective-C slinging guy. Gotcha. So I want to go back to the, some of the Apple stuff. So you were working on the teams that put out Mac OS, is that right? That's right. And OS X as well. Yes. Uh, how, how was that? Was that uh, an exciting time? <laughs> yeah, it's kind of like when it was exciting, absolutely. Um, how was it is kind of like when you ask somebody how their hometown is. It's like, uh, it's just the way it was. Um, mm. But uh, it was, I can say how it was when I first got hired at Apple, extremely exciting. Mm-hmm. Um, I was, you know, I had a contract job there when I was as young as 18. Wow. And then I got hired there when I was 20. Which was 96 or so? Yeah, 96 was mm-hmm. my hire date. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just thought like, that. I, I thought I had just skipped over so much struggling and, and it was true actually i mean it was i i empathize that a lot of people really like want to work at apple someday in their life and i mean at least you know in my field in my like apple fanboy field right um but uh i just got lucky and i got in there early and i was able to work on some really cool stuff really technical stuff stuff that kind of gave me um an unusual technical debugging um tool tool set sort Mm -hmm. of like i I got into uh programming and to working at apple at kind of the tail end of um assembly language really being still discussed frequently and debugged directly in um spent a lot of time over those years at Apple really digging into like at the bit level what's going on here why is this function having this side effect uh we did some weird weird bugs on like uh uh hard disk controllers where it's like you know mm. down at the level where you're like why is this driver sending this message to the hard disk and then i come out of that and leave apple um and really what my deficiency was was um i didn't know how to write apps so it's kind of like coming out of that. Like I know how to debug the driver, but you know, not the app. So yeah. Um, so did you struggle with things like making user interfaces and things like that? Um, I, I guess I, I, I did struggle with that. I probably am more just as a Mac aficionado sort of like we kind of, if we're those of us who like 
are Mac users with cause. We sort of know why we are Mac users. One of those things is kind of knowing a good UI from a bad UI. Mm-hmm. Um, so I felt like I had a kind of a natural sense. It's kind of like, um, you know, some people just know if they're dressed in a way that looks well or not. <laughs> and um, I, so I had that going for me that I could kind of like just hack away at my UIs and say, this doesn't look right. I, d- I did end up reading a lot about why things don't look right. Mm-hmm. Um, but what really what got me was I had a, a pretty major deficiency and maybe if there's like a real strong technical deficiency, I still have it's, um, at that level of high level application design. So, you know, separating things out into, um, components, uh, how, how things are broken down, all the like object oriented programming concepts mm-hmm. of, design patterns and, you know, composition versus inheritance. All of these things were not tested in my, um, most of my jobs yeah. at Apple. So. so does, does that matter? I mean, you have users that, that use your software and they like it, and, but the reality is they don't care how the code looks. So does, is, has this stuff hampered you? Has it prevented you from, you know, moving as quickly as you'd like to? Um, I would say that it goes both ways because, um, my software is probably, far less buggy than some stuff would be because of that, you know, low level experience I had. Like if I get a bug in my app that seems mysterious and unsolvable, usually I can get to the bottom of it. And so therefore I have like this advantage of, I think more robust software in general. Um, but I do think I have been slowed down over the years by, um, maybe picking a more naive, software design that then doesn't give me the flexibility later to, uh, as you said, the the users don't care what's behind the scenes, but users care about features. And sometimes users ask me for features where, unfortunately, the real reason it hasn't happened yet is it requires some like architectural rework of the app to get that done. Can can you be a little more specific about those architectural changes that, Um, that you regret now? Or Yeah. uh, Well, for example, so we, we haven't mentioned it yet, but one of my main apps is a a blog editor for the Mac called Mars edit. Mm -hmm. And I can't take all the, all the glory or all the blame for this app's design because I acquired it. Um, Hmm. but, uh, it has some things that I have designed into it. And some of, some of the things that were existing designs that, um, make it sort of hard to keep up with the changing landscape of blogging. So one of the challenges as an editor of an app like this is it needs to be able to connect to a variety of systems. So WordPress, Tumblr, Blogger, movable type, you know, all these different things. And uh, even new things coming out every day, uh, new features coming out for, say, WordPress. Mm. Um, And there's an extent to which still the app has a kind of monolithic um, design when it comes to handling the various features of various systems. Mm -hmm. So... uh, for example, some, you know, WordPress adds a new feature, um, and there 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 becomes there, there's some friction in Mars Edit's design where it's like maybe it assumed that if it, if, an, if a blog was WordPress that it had all these capabilities, and now uh, it has to contend with the fact that some WordPresses are different from other WordPresses. So mm. because WordPress is an installed, you know, user installed system, or it can be. Um, so that's a challenge uh, that, for instance, you wouldn't have if you were developing for Twitter or something where there's only one installed 
version of Twitter. Um, But that's just a... Sounds messy. Yeah, it's very messy. But the thing is, I think the messiness of this particular app kind of makes it like a beautiful test bed for a lot of um, software abstraction Mm -hmm. ideas. Mm -hmm. So it's not like... Uh, you know, there's some apps out there. I don't know if I can, you know, I, I, I don't want to trivialize any kind of app because I know they can all be very complicated under the, under the scenes. But suffice to say that some apps have um, re- requirements and constraints that wouldn't push the developer to have to explore mm-hmm. very many different design sort of issues. Mm-hmm. And I kind of appreciate that. It's frustrating about my work, but it's also something I can appreciate, which is, this is kind of affording me an ongoing education in mm. software development. And uh, an income, a living. And an income, and that's important. Yeah. yeah. So you said that you manage yourself as, I mean, you're, it's just you at, as the, the software guy, and, or as everything, really. Yes. Is it hard to manage yourself? Uh, very hard. That's probably the biggest challenge, and it's probably the thing that... Um, it's probably the thing that, you know, people who ask me, like, or tell me they want to go indie, they want to go solo, they want to run their own business, probably the thing that concerns me most on behalf of other people is whether they will find a way to sort of manage themselves. Um, and when I say that, I mean a lot of people have, like, this vision of running their own software company that is something like program whatever you want and get paid for it. And, you know, it's unfortunately just a microcosm of what any software company would face, which is um, you need to program things that people want to buy. You need to coordinate and communicate with customers. You know, you need to um, have a marketing approach of some kind. Mm -hmm. Uh, And all these things sort of add to um, this list of possible deal breakers for somebody like in a position like mine, mm. uh, being on this podcast, podcast, for example, um, you know, I run, I have a podcast of my own. I'm fairly comfortable talking on podcasts, still a little nerve wracking going to someone's, you know, podcast and putting yourself out there. Mm-hmm. But some, for, for a good number of people, and I think especially a good number of like really talented programmers just coming and popping up on somebody's podcast would be terrifying. Mm-hmm. And, um, Likewise, uh, you know, adopting like a marketing tone in a Twitter account or um, even like just like being able to kind of talk up your work in a way that is not completely self-deprecating. Like a lot of developers would be, well, there's a, you know, like I just talked about my Mars edit problems. Um, But, you know, some people are like, well, it's not really anything really great yet. And it's, uh, Mm -hmm. those are the kinds of things that if you had a management team in place, you would have the marketing expert or the PR expert who would say, but it lets you connect to a blog, right? And just sell it on that point, right? Don't sell it on, uh, it has some growing pains. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's the kind of stuff I think when I say I'm managing myself, it's trying to not only convince myself to do all the different things that sort of a successful company has to have somebody to do, mm-hmm. but also just managing the time to get those various things done. Do you have a routine that you, you go into to get to sort of break down your day? Uh, unfortunately, I don't. I kind of have... Um, so one of the things I struggle against is I have that um, 
you know, if you have like a full-time job, you might think, oh, it'd be so great if I had my own company, I could just pick what I work on and I can call the shots. And I had that feeling when I first left Apple and it hasn't worn off. So unfortunately, I'm a little bit, um, I'm a little bit stuck in the honeymoon phase of having uh, completely control over my time. Um, what that means, practically speaking, is some things do get put off a little longer than they should, uh, mm-hmm. but I do have some priorities. So I kind of run the company as um, with some, uh, I think of things very rule based. So, like, I have a rule that in general, no customer support inquiry can um, be left for like more than 24 hours. And that's the kind of thing that keeps me on top of things, having these kind of rule systems. Um, mm-hmm. Rules like, uh, every crash report that comes in needs to be reviewed. Um, you know, I know some companies sort of sort of treat crash reports as a statistical thing. Uh, so that's a kind of a rule that goes back to, you know, wanting to maintain this robustness in the app. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have some other kind of like less literal rules, but, you know, um, it's like on last week's pro- uh, program, uh, that, that you guys did with Brett Terpstra, I, I heard him saying, um, you know, he doesn't want to be successful as like the fart app guy. Uh, and there's kind of like an element of that in my, and I know this was a scheduling sort of scheduling question, but it comes down to like, there are things I will do and spend a lot of time on and focus on because they sort of meet this rule matching thing. Like the app needs to, you know, meet this level of functionality or it needs to have this level of um, uh, user centric behavior. Um, so that's kind of what drives me. I kind of get like a typical day at home. I'll start working on something and then, uh, it could be like, you know, working on what I'm planning to work on. And then something comes in, something comes up that reveals to me a sort of violation of the rules. Uh And then it's like, uh, Oh, I gotta, I gotta work on that right Mm now. Um, and I guess that's the best way I, I could put it. I would like to have more structure, um, but it turns out that so far that's not working for me. Yeah. Huh. Interesting. But how how long has Red Sweater been around? Uh, it's technically been around since 1999. Okay. So it started before, um, it, it was technically started before I quit Apple. Uh, so hmm. I guess I must have had some inkling that you wanted uh, to, yeah, eventually I yeah. wanted to do something. So, so the rules are working. I think so. Yes. Well, I, I, you know, this is funny too. Like I said, I mentioned about like, uh, developers, like always like talking, no, not, not all developers, but you know, there's a tendency to be realistic about our achievements. And, um, so I was moping around the other day, like, oh, it's been 10 years and, and I've, you know, I haven't really achieved everything I want to achieve. And, and this was, I was, I was reckoning based on 10 years since I had left Apple. Mm -hmm. Um, and then sort of took like somebody like said, but it's been 10 years since you had a boss, you know, and it's been, it's been 10 years and it's, it's kind of like you don't survive for 10 years with a roof over your head and your family fed and all that without being able to at least call that a success, you know? Right. So I try to remind myself of that. Yeah, that's good. It's tough to manage that mindset. I think we all do that. Yeah. Right. It's, I mean, it's, it's the, it's the phenomenon of as soon as you've achieved something, it's passe. It's like, oh, well, that's only all I did. Yep. 
You know, I, exactly. wonder, I wonder what like the president of the United States thinks. Well, like, you know, well, that's the thing. We had uh, David Hennemeyer Hansen on a couple episodes ago, who has achieved a lot of amazing things. And I asked him this question: right. you know, How do you feel when you have achieved oh. something? And he goes, "Oh yeah, as soon as I've achieved it, I'm just thinking about the next thing, and whatever I've done has already been discounted." Yes, I actually heard that episode. That was uh, that was good. But that might have been like latent in my mind just now when I was yeah. thinking about that. Cool. Yeah. So, um, do you have any recurring revenue in this in your business, or is it all sort of one-off purchases for people? It is all one-off purchases, um, and I've I've sort of thought about different things like that could be recurring revenue, but usually I just come back to I mean, maybe kind of getting back to like some of the things that I feel like are holding me, holding me back. One of the things is, ironically, the success of Mars Edit because its own success keeps me focused on it mm. to the exclusion of other ideas. Yeah. Um, maybe that'll change if someday I have a staff or whatever, but, um, I don't have any recurring subscription revenue, but there's this sort of phenomenon with Mars edit in particular that it kind of feeds itself. Um, in the sense that as you can imagine, uh, a Twitter client would people who use an app like this tend to tell other people about it Mm. because it's a tool for social communication on some level. Right. So, um, I kind of I kind of have the luxury. It's not it's not this, not to say that sales are always great or always going up, um, but I have this luxury that um, sales are fairly consistent. And like I don't I don't feel like I have to go out and hustle for each sale. Mm-hmm. And there's sort of a critical mass. Um, you know, again, going back to what uh, something Brett Ter- Terpstra said um, about like charging a small amount for an app to get like uh, um, a a bunch of people using it because then they're going to tell their friends to buy it. Mm-hmm. Um, I never charged a small amount for Mars edit, but I do have the luck now of having it be like the name that comes to mind for a lot of people. So like if somebody on, on Twitter says, what's a, what is a blog editor for the Mac? Then it's likely that five people will say, go try Mars edit. So mm-hmm. that's kind of cool. Yeah. Um, so not, not recurring, but so, somewhat automated revenue. <laughs> yeah. Do you worry? That, do you worry about that drying up someday? Absolutely. I mean, constantly worried about yeah. what happens if you know what happens if sales go to zero tomorrow. Mm-hmm. And you know, I have savings. I have some some safety nets in place, but it's it is scary. And I think in the sense that um, with that kind of like realistic attitude that maybe everything you've achieved isn't so great uh, after all. It's a uh, or, or, or not, not that it's not so great, but, um, you know, like you were saying with David, like once you've achieved it, it just seems like what's the big deal. I think there's also a risk of, um, feeling like, uh, everything you've achieved up to this point might just be that this long lucky streak. Right. Yeah. And then, yeah. um, sure. I was able to come up with an app that makes a living once, but what if I can't do it a second time? Yeah. Um, and I don't, I, I don't think that's, a good way to look at the world, but it's, um, it still causes me, you know, some fear, anguish. Hmm. That's interesting to hear. I mean, because you've had 10 years of success. Yes. Right. Right. It's like this, this, I've, I've always had sort of, um, I've always been interested in things where you can create a recurring revenue thing because you're reasonably confident that that will continue. Um, but it's, and it's interesting to hear from someone who's, spent 10 years of success in this that you still have this fear when you have a situation of one-off purchase type things that maybe it just stops maybe it goes to zero i guess you have the same risk you have a risk as well if you have some sort of recurring thing but it seems lower 
Yeah, um, I don't know. It's it does seem lower to me because you've got this like re-engagement with the customer every week or month or whatever. Yeah, right? but you sort of yeah. have to keep selling Mars Edit to new people. That's like, right. You're like, yeah. relying on almost market growth and human population growth. That's true for the most part. There has I have taken the approach that's traditional with desktop software of paid upgrades. Sure. So that's an opportunity to get something akin to uh, subscription. You know, when you consider you're asking them to pay, like you know, well, my paid upgrades have been pretty cheap actually. So not not really adding up to what you would see like as a monthly fee or something. But yeah. um, it's true. That's uh, to be honest with you, the whole idea of subscription recurring anything has just been off of my radar since when I started doing quote unquote shareware, Mm -hmm. there was no real mechanism for that. You know, like, um, the very early days when I started looking at this stuff, it was still like, mail me a check, uh, and I'll send you, uh, you know, a disc. And, um, over the years, you know, you got like these payment processors who would handle things, but they didn't have some, you know, recurring payments. Now I think it's just so easy. Pay- PayPal will do it. All these different companies will do it for you. And it's probably something to look into more. Mm. Uh, this idea of should you try to, you know, hook people in at a lower cost on a recurring basis. Mm. So you have uh, Mars Edit is on the App Store? It is, yeah. And available directly from your, your, direct, your yes, website. Yeah. Um, what's the breakdown of that, of purchases? Uh, it's, I, would, I don't do a real constant, like, analysis of this but i would guess it's like 60 app store 40 uh direct mm-hmm. and i kept the direct store around because as much as i love apple they've given us lots of reasons to be skeptical about mm. you know how secure and how not secu- not secure in a like protection of data way but secure in a stability way mm. um the app stores are because you know on either ios or the mac um you know, there have been situations where people just get suddenly banned from the app store. Uh, Apple decides they don't like the kind of app that somebody's selling. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, they sometimes change the standards for what's allowed in the app store. So I keep the direct sales for two reasons. Um, one, because some customers are almost politically opposed to the app store. Yeah. Um, of course, many customers are the opposite. They're like, where's the App Store version? I only want to buy things from the App Store. Uh, but some people are um, really not happy with it yet. Uh, and then, like I said, just to have an out in case um, in case Apple were to boot me for some reason, mm-hmm. I could still go on selling directly. Yeah. Do you make less money on the copies sold in the App Store because of Apple's cut? Yes, definitely. Uh, I charge the same amount for each but Apple takes 30% when they sell sure. a copy. And, and, you know, people were moaning about that from the beginning, but personally I have no problem with it because they have um, they have followed through on their end of the bargain as far as, like, bringing new attention to the app. Um, mm. You know, when the App Store, the Mac App Store debuted, um, my sales just went undeniably up. Mm. And it was, you know, there was some fear at the beginning that, uh, they would be like poaching people who were going to buy anyway, but then went to buy through the app store. And if that was true for 100% of sales, obviously it would be a 30% pay cut for developers. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but the sales, you know, the raw numbers just went up. Mm-hmm. So they've done their job in that respect. Yeah. 
Um, I don't know if every developer has the same experience, but you know, for me at least, that's how it's worked. So, hmm, so you've been overall happy with the App Store then as a revenue source? Absolutely. Yeah, I would be. I would be. Um, I would be uh, very unhappy, and perhaps <laughs> maybe that's one of those fears we were alluding to. Uh, mm-hmm. I would be very unhappy if I was not allowed for some reason to sell in the App Store. Sure. Hmm. So, so uh, we saw a couple of tweets of yours where you were sort of slamming Git. Oh, yeah. Want to have, have a showdown now? <laughs> uh, no, no, I don't want to argue. I, I want to hear your side. Uh, basically, this comes back to um, my attitude. Remember, remember I said uh, people, for instance, who use the Mac have a certain attitude about how things should look and how things should work. Yeah. Um, and to be really blunt about it, I think the I think Git is more like I always say it's more like a PC and 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 Mercurial is more like a Mac. Mm. Um, people, of course, are quick to jump in and say, "No, no, Git is more like Linux." Obviously, given its uh, origin story. Right. But um, the point is, there's a reason for picking one or the other, and it doesn't invalidate um, the other choices yeah. rationale. So, mm-hmm. for example. I think it's really um, the reason I think it's a better comparison to the PC is because it you know Git. Let's let me evaluate Git in in critical but I think honest terms. It is the most popular, um, or at least the most po- popular in a trend sense, um, source control software out there. It is the most um, powerful, probably. Uh, in the sense of allowing folks who really understand it to do absolutely what they want to, to this, you know, graph of source control changes Mm -hmm. and the same kinds of arguments. Um, one more, and it's, uh, it's popularity means that, um, a lot more tools are available for it. Services like GitHub, um, are available for it. And these are all the same arguments that people used against the Mac in favor of the PC. Hmm. It's um, the PC, 95% of people had a PC when 5% of people had a Mac. Mm -hmm. Um, The numbers are still very, you know, very similar that way. But, um, you know, for a long time it was like, oh, I would get a Mac, but there's just all this software that's only available for a PC. Uh, I I don't like the Mac because whenever I want to do something complicated, it just hampers me. I can't get what I want done through the Finder. Um, all of these things are the kinds of things that people defend Git with. Mm. Um, just just stick it out. Once you learn Git, you're going to really love it. And it's like kind of like a bondage mentality, I think. It's <laughs> like, um, yeah, you're going to really love it because you will just have this this endorphin rush when you like conquer this impossible UI. Yeah. Uh, that's how I feel about it. I know some people claim that they just... I, I get very few people who claim that the when I, to be clear when I say UI I'm not talking about any app like Git X or um, you know any any I'm not talking about a user interface in the graphical sense I'm talking about the command line UI mm-hmm. and I think most people agree that Git has a more complicated command line UI. Oh, I think so. Um, what I think very few people appreciate is over time how much mercurial for example has a great deal of the power of git with a applaudably simple far from perfect ui 
Hmm. Um, so that's what I, that's where I came down on that. I use Git with because um, I because I like GitHub and I I would I would be overjoyed if GitHub like officially supported Mercurial. Mm-hmm. Um, and I sort of like hold out hope that someday all of these source control systems will be you know remembered as this era in source control like you know we all loved cvs or those of us who are old enough loved cvs i was i'm just old enough that i used rcs before cvs mm-hmm. um and then it was just a revelation to move to svn i mean remember there was a time when there was nothing people people had nothing short of commercial software that they may have liked that was as good as svn and then out of nowhere, we got Git, Bazaar, Mercurial. Mm-hmm. Um, at this point, I've kind of given up on this this era. <laughs> I'm like resigned to the fact that Git is definitely dominant. It's definitely powerful. It has had a net benefit on the world. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean I don't like Mercurial better, but I don't think Mercurial is going to come back, for, for instance. Mm-hmm. But I think there's a chance that somebody will come out with something that um, somehow puts us ahead of all all of those and um, when it does, I'm hoping it has a better UI than Git. Uh-huh. Okay. But you think this will be remembered as the Git era? Ah, uh, definitely. Yes. Yeah. In, in the sense that there was an SVN era and there was a CVS era. Yeah. Um, there's no... Uh, Mercurial is, I think, always going to be a little side note mm-hmm. uh, in this era. Mm. So you mentioned that you co-host a podcast called uh, Core Intuition. That's it, yeah. Um, and I was looking at your site, and I think you've had somewhere around 80 episodes or high 70s, something in there. Um, Got any lessons for a podcast that's had about half as many episodes? What do you think makes a good podcast host and a good podcast? That's interesting. Um, I haven't really thought about it too much. Um, there have been times when I've listened to other podcasts and I thought, this is a, a, like a clinical problem with this podcast. So, um, for example, this podcast we're having right now is conversational. There's a back and forth. There's a dynamicism. Uh, that neither one of us knows exactly where it's going to go next. Mm-hmm. Um, I think listeners like that. It feels like they are part of the conversation in a sense. And um, when the host or guest or co-host or co-host sort of drives things in one direction or the other, I think some listener out there is thinking, that's the question I wanted to ask. Mm-hmm. You know, that's where I wanted to go. Mm-hmm. Um so I've heard some podcasts before where there's a little too much um, exposition. Like, to, you know, today on today's podcast, we will discuss why I don't like Git. And then 20 minutes later, point 13 is, mm-hmm. you know, this. Um, I think that can work, but it's not the... It doesn't have the same kind of... Um, I think when I listen to podcasts, I kind of like feeling like I know the people like we're all sitting in a room together and that's mm. just un- unfortunately they can't hear me <laughs> um and i think a lot of listeners like that yeah. um a lot of people have different opinions about length uh you know personally some of my favorite podcasts are like two hours long mm. that's partly because i listen while i run um uh. folks who have a 15 minute commute to work tend to prefer 15 minute long podcasts i never thought about that but i bet that's true uh, so in our show, we have hovered around 30 minutes, and we get a lot of feedback saying they wish it was longer, a lot of feedback saying it would be perfect if it was 15 minutes. 
<laughs> so time, I think, is sort of an unsolvable. It's kind of like, yeah. y- y- you know, are you a mystery or a drama or a thriller? It's like you can't be yeah, everything so the to pod- everybody. The podcast lesson here is don't listen to your listeners. <laughs> yeah, to that extent, in, in that respect, yeah. yeah. Um, but uh, one thing we discovered, actually, um, is... So, so y- yeah, you're right. We have, like, I think we're releasing today maybe our 73rd episode. Um, but something like... 30 or 40 of those, 30 at least, were in the past eight months or so. Mm-hmm. Because we had a, we had, we've been doing this for something like four and a half years now. Mm. But we started out with a very loose schedule, and that, that degraded to um, very infrequent to the point where we had a year where we had two episodes. Wow. Um, so from the point of view... I, I think listeners, again, like some regularity. So making it weekly, making it daily, if that's your thing, maybe the daily five-minute podcast, but doing something with regularity, I think, helps a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, we sort of ended up going weekly on a pretty strict schedule uh, as a byproduct of choosing to be um, to take sponsor. So once we decided to reward ourselves with some compensation, it was a... There was a reason for getting up in the morning, you know? Yeah. Uh, and it's funny, you know, it it didn't feel like to either of us that we were particularly greedy for the money, but it was almost like a validation of the podcast to have mm-hmm. somebody saying, you know what, we'll pay you to do this. So regularity helped a lot. Um, apart from that, you know, I have a lot of, I'm, I'm not sure, I have a lot of doubts about it. Cause sometimes when we're sitting around talking, I think, why would anybody want to listen to this? <laughs> and it's, I think it's, um... I think there's a lot of value in um, just trying to keep some energy in it. Like, um, yeah. if if both my my co-host Manton and I come to the table and say, "I don't know, what did you do last week? Did you enter? You know, did you submit any new software?" It's a little different than, "So, how's that new software submission going?" You know, if you right. just kind of make it's almost like having that other voice I was talking about, like the marketing voice. Right. You don't want to be fake, but there is a um, there is an excited you in there, maybe not overexcited, mm-hmm. who is just more interesting to hear on a podcast. Yeah, that's an interesting way of thinking about that. Um, so one more thing I want to ask you about before we wrap up. Um, you gave a talk um, called Real Artists Ship Eventually. Yes, I did. Okay, you talk yes. about that? Singleton. Yeah, I had to, I had to place that one. Yeah. Um, this was an interesting conference. Um, I don't know how many of your listeners will already be familiar with it, but it's a Mac and, and iOS-based conference. Um, they don't even call it a, a a conference. They call it a symposium. Hmm. Um, it's a single track show in Montreal um, that was just started by some friends of mine. And the idea was kind of to have like more thematic, less technical talks. Mm-hmm. Um, so a lot of the talks are like about philosophies of programming or business or, um, you know, just kind of like higher level stuff. Hmm. Uh, so when they asked me to talk there, I think that was just what was on my mind because, um, you know, I mentioned earlier in the show that I have not really tackled iOS as much as I wish. Mm-hmm. And, um, this was, this talk was just sort of my public therapy about why I haven't gotten that done. Yeah. Uh, so it's interesting. Did it work? Do you feel better after you gave it? <sighs> or after you wrote it and thought about it? Mm, not really, but, uh, it's, uh... <laughs> 
it was illuminating. I think that you know, there were some reasons why I haven't haven't gotten it done. Um, part of that process was going back and sort of similarly to like going back and saying, "Oh, I've been without a boss for ten years." Um, I was able to look back at the years preceding and say, "Well, you know, I don't have any iOS apps, but I have two kids who didn't exist before." And you, you kind of like take stock of like some of the reasons why you don't accomplish what you wish you were in life is because actually other things that are more important are yeah. being being accomplished. So Absolutely. I think that's a good way to look at it. Yeah, sounds healthy. Um, so if if people wanted to get in touch with you, what's a good way to to reach you? I think we talked about your Twitter handle. Is that the, is that the best way? Uh, yeah, that's probably a good way to start. I also have... Um, uh, you, don't, you don't seem like a punk ass, by the way. <laughs> I always surprise people in person. Yeah. Um, I have a... Um, my 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 site has a sort of a blog. Uh, my my software site has a blog, red sweatercom slash blog, and I've actually been struggling with that over the past few years, trying to. Um, you don't have a piece of software to publish it. Yeah, I know, yeah. I'm just looking for a great some sort of way client. to work on yeah. the desktop. Yeah, um, I've been struggling with. Uh, I I sort of used the the personal nature of my blog of my software company as a. Um, rationale for blogging fairly personally on the company site mm. and but when i say that i mean i wasn't talking about like depression or things like that but it was like um talking about how i program solutions i'd come up with stuff that's sort of geared towards other developers and then like industry opinions and things like that mm-hmm. so i recently um switched some of that off to another blog which is called bitsplitting.org mm. um so those are the ways to kind of keep up with me. Um, check it, check me out on my podcast, and if you just want to drop me a line, probably um, you know you can figure it out from red sweater dot com. Uh, my last name is a little hard, but it's jalkut at red sweater dot com. And if anyone wants to get in touch, awesome. That's J A L K U T. Um, awesome. Uh, so I think that wraps things up. Uh, thanks very much for coming by. I appreciate it. It's been really fun. Thanks yeah, for having me. Absolutely. Um, so if you'd like to access show notes for this episode, you can go to thoughtbot.com slash podcast slash, what are we at? 32, says Chad from outside the booth. Uh, today's podcast was recorded by at, recorded and produced by Chad Pidel, edited by Edward Lovell. And a special thanks to Chad for hosting last week's podcast and also for covering for my schedule mistake that nearly dis, uh, derailed this week's podcast. Uh, thanks very much for listening. Thank you.